Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and its sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, currently working on an untitled third Banneker Bones adventure, so look forward to that. These are the stories uh, of a um, uh, middle grade uh, detective partners. There is Banneker Bones and his cousin Ellicott Skullworth. Uh, they're riding on jetpacks to take on the giant robot bees. They've got fan boats in the sewers of Latimer City to take on the alligator people. It's Batman at age 11. Uh, if that sounds fun to you, you can check out Banneker Bones and the giant robot bees as an ebook for free. It's free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Also available as a paperback and an audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. Uh, and then Banneker Bones and the Alligator People also available, but this one you gotta pay money for. Uh, so check those out under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. I've written some horror novels for order, for older readers, uh, such as All Together Now, A Zombie Story, which is a young adult novel, uh, and The Book of David, the Book of David is a five-volume serial horror novel that I've just dropped, so we'll just leave it there on the floor. Um, the first chapter of The Book of David by Robert Kent, not Rob Kent, is available to download as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, whenever fine ebooks are sold. Um, last week, those of you regular esteemed audience members may recall, I went on a brief political tirade. I'm not going to do that again. I didn't like doing that. Uh, this isn't a political show, uh, but as of tonight, which is June 19th, 2019, as we're recording this, uh, impeachment inquiries have still not begun. Uh, so this week I emailed all of my representatives. Uh, really easy, it took me all of about three minutes. I typed up the message, then I copied and pasted the body of it and changed the heading for each of them. Uh, and then I also called and left messages for all of my representatives and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Again, took me a little less than 10 minutes to do that. Uh, pull up the numbers on my phone, copy and paste them right over to the dial. I was playing video games the whole time I did it. It was not a great hardship. If you're paying attention to the news, if you're frustrated, do something. Now is the time to take action. Reach out to your uh, reach out to your representatives. Let them know that it's important to you that impeachment proceedings begin and that we restore the rule of law here in our country. Uh, and then after that, I won't talk politics anymore. So we could just go back to just talking about books and authors and stuff that I enjoy. Uh, speaking of which, make sure you tune in next week on the 25th, which I believe is uh, Tuesday. Uh, we will have editor Diana Foe uh, here to chat with us, editor of, among other books, uh, Nora Everlasting. I'm sorry, Everlasting Nora. So that's going to be a good one. Everlasting Nora is a book by tonight's guest, uh, Marie Miranda Cruz, who I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome. Uh, Marie, how are you? Marie, did I lose you? Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, hopefully the uh, satellite that was blocking us has moved out of uh, orbit again. How are you this evening? I'm very good. How are you? Doing well. I hope my uh, connection sticks. I mean, it's been a little touch and go lately. My internet sometimes terrible. <laughs> we are in the midst of a pretty nasty rainstorm here in Indiana. We lost power earlier, but uh, hopefully oh. that will not be the case. So hopefully we'll, we'll we'll have a good connection. We'll be able to get through the whole show. I hope uh, so. If too. not, it's it's free. Whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
it will be all right. Um, if you would, I am terrible about um, other, uh, summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies. So if we could start, if you would just tell esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, my name is Marie Miranda Cruz, and I am the author of this little this little book here. This is Everlasting Nora. It came out in October of 2018. It's published by uh, Starscape um, under Tor Books, which is a division of Macmillan. And um, it's received some very nice uh, reviews. It's been received very well, in fact. Um, it's received two stars, uh, starred reviews, one from Kirkus and one from uh, School Library Journal. Um, as far as myself, um, I am not a full-time writer. Um, I started writing only about 12 years ago. Um, my current career is a cytogenetics technologist. So basically, I analyze chromosomes for a living, and I write whenever I can after that. <laughs> what uh, sounds like a very full plate that, that you have. Um, what, uh, what, what, I can't even say the name of your profession. <laughs> what does a, what, what do you, what, what is your title again, and, and what is it exactly that you're doing with chromosomes? Okay, so I, I am a cytogenetics technologist, so cytogenetics, is a very new laboratory science uh, in the medical field. And what we do is we study the chromosomes for particular uh, mutations. It started out uh, for um, the, um, what do you call it? Um, for helping people understand if they, they were born with particular anomalies. So uh, studying the chromosomes helped us define, helped you know medical, uh, help physicians basically define um, or put a name to uh, certain, you know, um, physical, certain, I guess, birth defects is what I should say. Um, and, but the field that I work in is specifically for cancer. And so cancer cytogenetics uh, came about in maybe around the 1970s, late 1970s, so it's very new science. And they, um, I think a scientist was looking at a blood sample from a leukemia patient and they found a mutation. Um, and so ever since that time, the, the, the science for this has just escalated and keep, kept developing. So what I do is, is particularly in the lab that I work for, I work at um, a cancer center. And they, we study the chromosomes for uh, leukemia patients. And it, we take a sample of their bone marrow, we grow it, we harvest the cells, and then we examine uh, the chromosomes for particular I keep saying mutations for mutations, and and over the years, and I've been in this industry, um, in this field for about twenty five years, and it's from the time that I started to now, it's advanced leaps and bounds, and we've uh, discovered so many mutations related to so many different cancers and diseases, and from that information, uh, doctors and scientists have developed uh, protocols and, uh, for chemotherapy and treatments at, that have helped uh, these these patients live longer and more quality lives, better quality lives. Well, now I'm going to be torn because I was going to ask you when your next book was coming, and, and <laughs> I was hoping that it was going to come soon. But but now I'm thinking, gosh, if we if we keep you writing, are we keeping you away from the very important work that you're you're also doing on the science side? Well. <laughs> Well, you know, that, that's funny because um, as much as I would love to be a full-time writer, um, it, it's just not possible economically, you know, for my family to do so. So I have to keep working. 
Um, but I do love my job too. And I, and I do care about what I do and how it impacts patient health. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of twofold and, and I like being able to do both. So yeah, the book, obviously day jobs, you know, take priority in my life currently because it is paying the bills. And so I try to squeeze my Luckily for me, I have I have children, but they're grown children, so I don't have to bus anybody to school or hound anybody for homework. So you know, I I can actually take care of the writing things after work or before work. And have you always been able to use both the right side of your brain and the left side of your brain pretty much equally? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think it also kind of spills over a little bit to my creative side, my science side, because I am very, you know, being working in the science field, you, you, you're so regimented, you know, you have to follow procedures, you know, in, in order to, you know, do this for, you have to follow rules. And so when it comes to writing, I, I tend to be very structured, you know, I have to know what I'm going to do next. And I, I always play around with, with, like, you know, uh, plot formulas. <laughs> so are Until you a uh, very ardent on. plotter where you know the, the beginning, the middle, and the end before you get started at all? Or, or how, how, what is your process that way? Um, I am very much a plotter. And I, I think it comes very much from working in, in the science field, you know, working with, like I said, with, with protocols and procedures and rules. Um, uh, it, it, when it, it does spill over to how I, you know, think about stories. And, and it's very funny because um, I'm a very strange writer. I, you know, most, most writers love to start with character. Uh, I actually uh, begin with the setting. Sometimes I see something or a place and it just inspires me. And I, and I think about, you know, ooh, what kind of stories would, would happen in a place like that? And my mind just starts going. And then I start thinking about, oh, a character and what would happen? And, and yeah, I, I actually do plan everything out. Um, just the basic plot, and then I go deeper and, and do scene by scene plotting as well. <laughs> so how, how detailed are your scene by scene plots? Um, I try not to get them too detailed because it almost seems like, you know, I feel like I'm writing, you know, the book already, you know, or summarizing the whole thing. <laughs> I go into too much detail. I try not to, I just tell myself, okay, action. What is the action and what is my character supposed to feel or what, what does she want in this scene? Um, so I try to keep it brief, um, but uh, I end up writing long pieces <laughs> for my scene planning, but you know, yeah. I'm trying very much uh, to embrace a little bit more plotting. Um, uh -huh. I, I've done the just the hippie do as it comes to me, man, just <laughs> as I feel it kind of writing. And then I end up writing myself in the holes and, and have all kinds of trouble. And the revision is just such a nightmare uh, that I've, I've steadily embraced uh, outlining at least as I go to come up with at least a few steps ahead, like playing a chess game. Um, yeah. I, I never want to write a full outline. Uh, because the, the one time I did it, I never wrote the book. I already had a bang up uh, outline. I, I knew how it ended. That's, that's fine. Then let's move on to a new story that I don't know the ending of yet. Um, but I love having these conversations because I always say there are as many different ways to write uh, as there are writers. 
Uh, and so for folks that uh, listen to the show, they, they may hear um, an author that they really like say, I never plot. It's the worst thing you could do. And then they'll despair. And like, why can't I be as good as my, my favorite author who doesn't do it this way? And then they'll hear you and they'll say, oh, well, if the author of Everlasting Nora uh, plots specifically that I, I must be doing something right, I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, plotting is is well. It, it's so nice, you know. They, they you always hear these discussions between pantsers, you, whether you're a pantser or a plotter. You know, actually, you can be both. You can be both because, at least for me, the way it works, I can I can plan things out, and I'll sit there and start writing that chapter or writing that scene, and things just start happening that that I didn't anticipate. Conversations start happening. Or, or my characters start moving in a different direction, or they do things that, I, that are completely unexpected. And I end up revising my outline so much, so many times. You know, after I write that, I go, oh, yeah, I need to do that. So I go back and I change something in the previous scene to kind of, you know, accommodate, you know, this new direction that I'm going in. So I, I really think that it's a combination of both. At least for me, that's been my experience for sure. Um, you know, because there's still discovery, even though you're outlining, there's still a, a measure, I think, a lot of discovery in, in writing. Good. And then when you uh, when you have that detailed outline, I assume that makes writing that dreaded synopsis uh, a little bit easier later and also being able to talk exactly about what your book is about. Synopsis writing is still hard, <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> there is no hope. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's it, it it is a really really tough to con especially once you've completed the book. You know, just condensing um, everything into a single page, you know, it, it is a is tough. It's very tough because you want to be able to say everything. Of course, <laughs> that's why you wrote a whole book. If you could have done all of this on a page, you would have done it, right? This is <laughs> so. Well, let me, uh, let's start there. I have a bunch of questions for you about your background, but let's pursue mm -hmm. this idea of starting with uh, setting just a little bit, because uh, I want to talk a little, a lot about uh, Everlasting Nora, but I know that you had said uh, that it was, um, I'm trying to remember the, the exact holiday that you were at where you saw a cemetery and it, it gave you the idea to start All Saints Day, right? You were, you were in the Philippines and you saw All Saints Day and that kind of gave you the initial seed of the idea for Nora Everlasting. Do I have that kind of in the ballpark, right? That's, that's true. That, that's what, that was the initial inspiration. I started out actually in my writing career, I started out writing picture books. Um, I did, I'm, I'm not one of those writers that grew up wanting to be a writer. I, I, I did writing, you know, as a child, you know, I wrote in my diaries. Um, I did school projects and things like that. But I never, I never imagined myself uh, as a writer. And, and I think it's, big, it's a cultural thing. Because when I was growing up, uh, what you wanted to be, you know, your, your folks around you would say, you know, you're going to be either a doctor a nurse, a lawyer, you know, an engineer. Those are the accepted um, careers, basically. You know, to be an artist or to be a writer wasn't something that was, you know, looked upon as a possibility, you know, for, for me as I, as I, you know, when I was growing up. So I didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. And I, um, when I was older and I had my kids and we were going to the bookstore, I was, you know, looking at the shelves and shelves of books, and I saw these beautiful picture books of 
I think one was written by Linda Sue Park and it was, it was gorgeous. And I thought, you know, you know, I, I don't see any books uh, with Filipino children. Uh, I don't see books with Filipino culture or stories that came from the Philippines. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, it, there really should be books for, you know, Filipino American kids and for all American kids, you know, because they're going to have Filipino friends, you know, to know, to get to know them, to know them as people, to know where they are from, you know, and to understand them a little bit better. And so that's how I started out. So I had this great, you know, so I was writing picture books. I had this great idea um, that about these, you know, pair of brothers that would, that would uh, on the night of All Saints Day, because in the Philippines, All Saints Day, uh, we would go to the cemeteries at night. And uh, that sort of freaked me out because when I first moved to the Philippines, it was uh, right before Halloween. And I was really bummed that we weren't going to be, uh, you know, they didn't celebrate Halloween in 1977. That kind of tells you how old I am. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I was really bummed, you know, back in 1977 when we, when we moved to the Philippines that they didn't have Halloween. And my cousin said, oh, you know, we, we're going to do something better. We're going to go to the cemetery. And I thought, why? And they said, oh, All Saints Day is when you go and you celebrate, you know, your, your loved ones who had passed away. So we're going to go visit them in the cemetery. And I go, oh, okay. And I, and I waited the whole day to go to the cemetery and we didn't go. And then finally around five o'clock in the afternoon, they said, oh, let's go. I go, oh, but it's going to be dark soon. I said, yeah, that's, yeah, that's when we all visit. And so, but the cemetery wasn't, you'd imagine it was scary, a place that was scary looking, you know, it, or dark, especially at night. Uh, it wasn't, it was actually something of a festival. And, and the way we celebrate it in the Philippines is very much how uh, Dia de los Muertos is celebrated in Mexico. We have, can we have candles, you know, the, the great, the tombs, the cemeteries in the Philippines are above ground. So what you see are like sarcophagus, they're above ground tombs. There's There are places that have the traditional type of cemeteries where it's just green grass and everyone is buried underground. Over there, they're all buried in these you know, above ground tombs. So the whole place is just cement blocks. That's all you see really. And on the night of All Saints Day, it is alive. I mean, there's lots of people. There are, you know, all the candles are burning, you know, in front of the tombs. Uh, people are sitting there with their snacks. <laughs> there are actually food vendors up going up and down the streets of the cemetery selling their wares. So it was very festive. And um, one of the things that my cousins did while we were sitting there, you know, my aunts and uncles would talk about, oh, this is your grandfather, you know, and they would tell stories about our relatives. And some of the little, little, Smaller kids, I should say. I can't say lit littler. <laughs> smaller I would have just gone with it. Sounded good to me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the smaller children would get bored listening to these stories. Eh, they don't want to hear those stories about old people. They would crouch in front of the burning candles and collect the melted wax that was dripping down the sides. And they would collect it and form it into balls. And so when I was writing picture books, I thought uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, to, to illustrate that. Uh, that experience for a child. And so I thought of this story about a pair of brothers who, you know, they were collecting wax and making these wax balls and uh, one of them drops their wax ball and it rolls off and it's it becomes like a portal into another place. So it's like a scarier place and they meet this goblin. And um, so that 
that story was in my head and I did write that picture book. Um, but later on down the road, I discovered that my picture books were way too long for, for the market or for what editors thought was a good picture book story. So I thought, you know, since I write such long picture book stories, maybe I should transition to writing longer pieces. And that's how I started writing novels. And I had that particular story in mind, you know, when I was thinking about writing my first novel. And when I what I did was I started doing a little bit more research on Philippine cemeteries. And what happened was I came across a blog post by an American missionary who happened to live from, who happened to come from Kentucky. Um, I wish I could find that blog post. It's long since it's gone now. I don't know what happened to it, but um, this missionary, American missionary wrote about uh, his experiences in the Philippines. And in particular, he wrote about these orphan children that he found. He he was working with some social workers, and they were encountering all these little uh, these orphan children who were living in the cemeteries. And he uh, talked about one particular girl named Grace, and she was 11 years old, and she had been abandoned by her mother, and she begged in the streets to survive, basically. Uh, she had no one to take care of her. She would just find wherever she could wherever place that was relatively safe to sleep in, uh, in the cemetery, in the cemetery. And, um, that's how I discovered. And through that article, I discovered there was a squatter community that lived in the cemetery. Um, they just lived inside mausoleums. Some of them built shanties over these old, uh, tomb. I don't know what they're called. We call them apartment tombs in the Philippines, because if you couldn't afford <laughs> your own plot of land, you could buy a slot in this building. I think they have them in some places here in the States too. And, and you would be buried, you know, in like this big rectangular building and, you know, they would have slots for tombs. And so in the Philippines, they call them apartment tombs. And so they built shanties over those too. And I was just fascinated. Um, from then on, I, I just kept doing, you know, I, my, the research just kept going. And I decided at that point, um, especially the story of Grace, uh, to continue uh, uh, about Grace, um, this missionary, he um, was so touched by her predicament because she was very, she was, she was, uh, she would beg for money, but she wouldn't go near any grownups. And, um, and it was because as, as, you know, she, like I said, she was abandoned by her mother. So she didn't have very much trust, you know, for grownups. Plus, um, I think she might've been uh, he he suspected, and the socialists, social workers uh, suspected that she might have been abused as well. And so he was uh, very disheartened for her and for all those children. So when he came back to the states, he uh, raised money because he wanted to build an orphanage for those for those kids. And it took him about a year, and he went back to the Philippines, and he was successful. He he raised enough money, he built the orphanage, he contacted those social workers that he worked with before. And um, he went looking for all these children. And he was looking for the child, the little girl named Grace. But uh, he, was, um, he was heartbroken to find out that, um, he was heartbroken to find out that, um, I'm sorry, hold on. I don't know why my computer is doing this. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, oh, I'm so hanging on your every word, please continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because my computer winked out for some reason. I don't know why. 
it went to sleep. Why I'm doing something? I don't know why it went to sleep. <laughs> so, so anyway, he was heartbroken to find out that this little girl died. Um, he went looking for her, he couldn't find her, and the social worker told him that she passed away, uh, all alone in a charity hospital. And I, that story just stayed with me. And I and I thought about you know children like her, what it must be like uh, for her. Who, especially her, who who is who who didn't have any family, you know. Like I said, there's a squatter community in, in living in the cemetery, and some of the kids that live there live with their families, so they have their moms and dads, brothers and sisters, and although you know life is not very comfortable, you know they don't have running water or bathrooms or or things like that, but they had each other, so it wasn't so bad. Versus this girl didn't have anyone. And um, then I start to think about what it would be like to, you know, for uh, for somebody new to come, you know, to be newly homeless and to find themselves in a situation like that. And actually, that's what I decided to. I just had decided already to write the story, you know, inspired by Grace's um, experience. But I had to approach it in a way because I, in a way, where um, because I've never been homeless myself. So I had to approach the story as somebody who is who finds themselves newly homeless and what that would be like to lose everything or to lose nearly everything as Nora did, you know, to lose her father and her home uh, and to have just her and her mother. Um, you know, what would that be like to have a total change? You know, you're, it's like your concept of home is one thing. What would happen when that all of that changes? You know how could how would she react? So that's how Nora's story was was born, pretty much. So what kind of research are you doing at that point? Or did you go out and find a, a mausoleum to spend the night in? Are you were you talking with people? What kind of research did you do to get up and running? Um, I have to admit, a lot of my research was over the internet. Um, I did live in the Philippines, uh, like I said, from starting from 1977. Uh, I was 12 at the time when I first, when I moved there. My dad was in the United States Navy. So we lived here in the States. We went back and forth between the Philippines and the United States. Uh, my dad retired from the Navy and he decided that I needed to, me and my brother and my sister needed to live in the Philippines for a while to, you know, to get to, we had lots of relatives there. So he wanted us to get to know our grandparents and all our family there and to kind of understand our culture. And I'm glad he did. Uh, so I spent high school and college there. And uh, so a lot of my research, visual research was on the internet. There were articles, interviews made of uh, with people who lived there. So there was a lot of that. I used a lot of that. And of course, my own memories of what, what it's like to be in, you know, to, to go to those cemeteries, just to visit them. Um, also with regards to poverty, uh, my, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I was I wasn't wealthy. My family was not wealthy. My my family was solidly middle class in the Philippines, and I actually had um, you know I have relatives who are even who are poor. Um, so getting to and and like I said, I have a huge family. Um, so you know variety of economic standing, and um, so I get to visit their homes. I get to see what it's like for them, you know, to to live without running water, to not have you know. Uh, to not have uh, uh, a bathroom, basically. Um, uh, 
and and to just live without the normal conveniences you, you know you and I here in the states is very very different the way people live over there it's super different so I, I called a lot from my own memories for this book and um, and the rest was internet research thank Makes goodness it. for the internet <laughs> let me uh, let me ask you this how does um uh, growing up in, in two distinctly different cultures like that, how does that inform your view of the world, especially when you're um, uh, doing that at such a young age and impressionable? And then how, also, how does that inform your writing? Well, um, my I, I think, you know, living in two different places, you know, uh, and, and living... Uh, how do you say it? Because when I was a child growing up here, you know, we had television, uh, we had telephones, my dad had a car, and, you know, we went to the grocery store, went shopping, went to the toy store, that kind of thing, uh, went to fast, you know, went to McDonald's and Burger King, <laughs> rode the, the yellow buses to school. Um, when I moved to the Philippines, it was very different. We, we lived in my grandfather's house, and my grand, we sacrifice, I mean, you really sacrifice it. Your lifestyle changes. So I guess in a sense, I, I just simply learned a lot how different people live, that it isn't all just one neat little, you know, way of living. You know, um, uh, in the Philippines, I had to uh, walk to a lot of different places. Uh, we use public transportation. My dad didn't buy a car until... I was in college, and at that he didn't even drive it a lot, you know, because gas is expensive, and because public transportation is so easy to find, you know, basically what we did was we walked to the corner of our street and we waited and we waited for a jeepneys. Have you ever seen a jeepney? Um, I, this is our form of transportation. We have buses, jeepneys, and what we call tricycles, which is a motorcycle with a cab, and you could hire one of those. You could flag one of those down, like a little, like a taxi in a way. I've seen one, but only because I looked yeah. one up as I was reading your book. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you could flag those down, and you you just tell them where you want to go, and they take take you right to the door. Versus jeepneys, they run a particular route, like a bus. Um, the difference is, it looks like one of those renegade jeeps, but they're extended. So each it can seat maybe. 20 people sometimes, 16 to 15 to 20 people. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess it informed it, it growing up like that, experiencing all those things, um, just broadened my view, I think, of how uh, people live and, and respecting that, you know, respecting that the struggles that people have when they don't have all the conveniences available to them, you know, how they can make do and um, how. You know, I mean, they could definitely wish for things to be better. You know, who doesn't, right? Um, but they make do, and I and I think that that's the 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 core of I think how I view the world. You know, that it it, it I find it interesting. I find it interesting how people, you know, different ways people learn how to cope with whatever's available to them and and the life that they live. Um, so I think it for me, it just makes me interested. In, in many other cultures, you know, seeing my own culture and how people live there, uh, being very American and, you know, living here and the lifestyle here, you know, it make, makes me curious for how other people live in other countries. 
Um, and in terms of how it informs my writing, um, uh, for this particular book, it certainly helped me, my experiences living over there. Um, uh, but it also, I think, helps me want to branch out. And, and I remember when I said earlier that setting inspires me. Mm -hmm. that that's why you know sometimes you know I love watching like National Geographic <laughs> Discovery Channel and and I love and I've always had an an interest in anthropology and so I love looking at the different you know cultures of the world and studying their society and studying how um, uh, how the family dynamics work and so that you know in turn, you know, as far as how it informs my writing, you know, it, it, it basically just inspires me to look deeper into how different it could be, you know, because even within, let's say, an American society, you have many people of many different backgrounds, right? And you know that the family dynamics could be very different from one family to another, you know, it may not be. So, yeah, and I even with, within people who have an otherwise very similar background. Uh, yeah, very similar, but they could live in exactly the same town, but the family dynamics, depending on, you know, how, you know, who their ancestors were or, you know, where they came from, if they, that city, if they weren't born in that city, right, you know, could inform how they live. So, yeah, essentially, I think, you know, my experiences living in two different countries helps me broaden my, un it's broadened my understanding. Uh, of how people live and, and made me curious about, um, you know, other, you know, how people live. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> it absolutely makes sense to me. Once in a while when I, uh, when I get to feel a little bit bummed out about life in the old US of A, um, doesn't happen very often. I'm, I'm very grateful for all the wonderful things I, I, I have. In fact, uh, those of you watching on YouTube, just behold the amazing Batman figures. What a time to be alive. Um, but uh, I will read uh, history. I'll read about uh, folks in other countries. I will seek out uh, books. And that uh, never fails to make me far more uh, grateful for what I have. I, I did a whole section on um, uh, Roman history and, um, and, and the Colosseum, and I found out that they were doing uh, executions. If, if you wanted to be an executioner, you'd work your way up uh, by doing uh, kind of like amateur hour or open mic night, but for executions outside the Colosseum. And so you'd have somebody out there taking requests for the, the people, the passers-by on their way to the main show while they're executing some poor slob. And I, I read that, I was like, you know what? America's not that bad. We're doing, we're doing okay. <laughs> we're missing that today. That's true. And, and you know, it, it's so funny, you know, America is, uh, is, is wonderful in a sense where you, I find it, what I find fascinating is, you know, all, when you look at it and you look at all the different accents and all the different regions, there's a reason why people have these different accents. It's because of, you know, the, the immigrant population that you know, hundred a couple hundred years ago, the, the the you know the people that came to live there, you know, whether they're from Ireland or or from Denmark or wherever, you know, and they settled in those particular states. I find that so fascinating, you know. I know you can see that even right here in Indiana, <laughs> where we're we're flat and boring and have a lot of corn. Uh, also, the the third largest uh, tech. Uh, uh, tech sector in the, in the country, but a lot of corn. Uh, and you can go from one town to another and you can very much still see the distinct uh, differences in those towns be, depending on um, what the background was of the people that, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that founded the town originally. Yes, yes, yes. So interesting, so interesting. 
Let's uh, get a couple questions uh, for you about your background, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about Everlasting Nora. Um, but I did want to ask you uh, how it is that you came up, uh, at, you wound up in Los Angeles, of all places. Um, well, let's see. Um, like I said earlier, I, I went to high school and college in the Philippines. My dad was retired from the Navy. He spent eight years playing tennis every single day. And so that was great, great for him. Um, but I left the Philippines and came back to the States in 1985 because, I, and I don't know if you recall that part of, well, maybe not too many people would be familiar with that part of history, but um, Philippine history, particularly the political side of it. Uh, Ninoy Aquino, Aquino uh, uh, arrived, uh, I think in the Philippines, maybe a year before I left and he was assassinated. And so there was a huge investigation um, regarding his assassination and the political uh, climate against um, uh, President Marcos at the time was just, was reaching a level that was starting to frighten my dad. And he thought, because my mom, we were all American citizens except my mom. And so he was afraid that if Marcos uh, and his cronies would, um, his cronies would um, decide to declare martial law again, my mom would be stuck in the Philippines. And so he decided we should all come back before, before things get heated up, before things get, you know, bad, you know, and I think they were, they were starting to have marches and riots in Manila at the time. So he decided, okay, pack up everyone and let's go back to the States. And it was his promise to me anyway, that he would, you know, that I would come back here once I finished college. Uh, so we, when we, when we came back to the States, we lived in San Diego for a bit. And um, I, I had a degree in biology. I was supposed to be uh, a pre-med student, but I decided I did not want to go to medical school. I didn't think medicine was my gig. Uh, so, but I just finished my biology degree. And when I came back to the States, I couldn't find, <laughs> I couldn't find a job related to biology. Um, and so I decided, okay, I would just find whatever job. And later on, I, um, Believe it or not, I worked as an insurance claims processor. I also worked as a receptionist at one point. And then I decided, you know what? I want to try something new. So I studied computer programming. And I became a computer programmer. And that's how I landed in LA. I found a job as a computer. I started programming for um, a company called, uh, I don't know if they're still in existence. They're called Computer Sciences Corporation. So I worked for their branch in, um, in Eagle Rock. Uh, the city of Eagle Rock in Los Angeles. And so that's how I ended up in LA and I'm still here. <laughs> so you've got all, all kinds of knowledge about lots of different fields so that when you're ready, you can write books about all, all kinds of disparate uh, subjects. Well, you know, it, it's been sort of my, my dream to write science fiction one of these days. Um, and in fact, people kind of tease me since I'm in the genetics field, they, they ask me, oh, you're gonna write something about genetics? I go, I want to, but um, that's not the stories that are, that are coming out of me right now. A lot of the stories coming out are more contemporary and realistic fiction. And I love stories about family, which is why I love middle grade. But if they had a genetic accident that gave some of them superpowers, I mean, that would still be about family, but they're there. <laughs> that could be in my future. <laughs> 
And then um, what's not, our, not a radioactive uh, spider, but a radioactive something else. <laughs> yeah, no, a radioactive uh, mosquito. Very different. <laughs> <laughs> what um, What are some of the books that you read getting as you were transitioning toward writing a middle grade novel? Because I know you started off looking at picture books and then you wanted to write something longer. Were there some books that you read that inspired you and that have influenced your work? Well, you know, when, when I started thinking about writing uh, middle grade uh, novels, I went to the library and I started checking out all these Newberry, <laughs> Newberry books, winning books. And um, uh, some of my favorite ones were uh, by Sharon Creech. Uh, sure. And also Kate DiCamillo. And those, uh, Kate DiCamillo is my particular favorite. I, I think I love, love her books. And it's, it's so it's so beautifully beautifully written, and um, I also love Lois Lowry. I've read a few of her books. She's very in, uh, she's a huge inspiration to me too. Um, so I would say, um, see, I'm really bad with titles. <laughs> it's been a it's been a while. Um, what is that? Oh, because of Win Dixie, it was that particular book by Sharon Creech that I partic particularly loved and what particularly inspired me. Also, um, Millicent Min, Girl Genius by uh, Lisa Yee. And in I fact, see. it was Lisa Yee, it was at an SEBWI conference that I went to and I heard her speak. And it was because of her primarily that I thought, you know what, I should write, I should write novels. Because she said in her, her, her speech, she says, you should, you know, be, you need to have the courage to say that you are an author. Just say it. I want to be an author. She says it's very scary, but once you say it, it'll stay with you. And and I did. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. That was twelve years ago. <laughs> Lisa E has written the finest Batgirl novel I have ever read. Oh, <laughs> She's yeah. written many other wonderful things, but uh -huh. I want to give props to the superhero high books. <laughs> Their Batgirl book is outstanding. <laughs> she, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. She continues to be so inspiring. Whenever I hear her speak or talk to her, she's just she's just wonderful. And what uh, what what did your affiliation with the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators do for you? Um, what does it continue to do for you? What has been the benefit of, of joining that organization? Oh, I, I I loved it. I mean, I think I see SCBWY as uh, basically, you know, it, it first of all, it was a place to learn when I was first starting to write, um, it, it's certainly, I, I understand that sometimes it's, it's you know, um, it, it's a huge investment to go to this, the, the main conferences. You know, they have the big conference in New York and the one here in LA. Um, it's a huge investment, but it's so good. They have so many great speakers, so many great authors. You know, the, the um, what do they call those? The, uh, the, the big speeches, what do you call those? But anyway, the whole conference is great. They have all those little workshops too, where they have agents, editors, you know, teach you about the industry. They, but there's also, SEBWI also provides smaller conferences, which are more affordable. And it's those little conferences that I really uh, took advantage of. And, you know, they had Writer's Day, Editor's Day, Agent's Day, those in different counties here in LA, we have our LA group. We have there's we have I think three or four groups just in Southern California alone, and each of those uh, groups are very active 
in in organizing um, day conferences, one day conferences. And I have to say, you know, it, it's just it's always been a source of for one thing, a source of inspiration. You know, to go to a place where it's um, um, where you have you're with people who are like you, who love writing, who are you know either you know at your same stage, you know, just beginning or struggling to find an agent or whichever level you're at, whichever part of the journey you're at, you're going to find somebody at these conferences who will will be just like you. And uh, they were so useful in helping me understand the dynamics of the industry, um, you know, how to go about, you know, querying, all those little steps you can find, you know, at these conferences and at their, on their website. They have so many resources. And it's been a big help to me uh, in these last few years. If I need, like, encouragement before, before I uh, publish my book, before I, well, I, before I published my book, even when I was agented, sometimes you feel a little low and you need to be around your people, your posse. And so that's a writer I feeling I low. I don't think I've heard of that. Before. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you just feel, you just get that feeling where, oh, you know, especially if you're, if you're, um, you know, well, especially before I, I, I signed with an agent, it was so, it was just so tough, you know, the query process. And uh, every time you get a rejection, you feel, oh, you feel like, you know, depressed. <laughs> Not de well, depressed. You just feel despondent, and and I and sometimes you just feel very sad, and you could be on the brink of saying, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. And then I tell myself, okay, I'm going to go to one of these conferences. Something will come up and say, oh yeah, I'm going to go to that conference, and because this author that I admire so much is going to be there, and she's going to be speaking. And I just get such renewed energy, you know, listening to them speak, getting to meet them, getting to chat with them, um, and just being around people I know. And, and, and what's so great, you know, going to conferences over the years, you see some of the same people. So you develop these friendships and these connections. And, and it's just every time I go to a conference, it's a reunion. I see so many old friends. Hey, how are you doing? How's the writing going? How's this? And it's just great. I think it's just great. It's good for the writer spirit, for sure. Well, take us, uh, if you don't mind, take us through your journey, because Everlasting Noir, that, that, that's your first book that's come out this year. And it's 12 years, uh, 12 years ago that you're really committing and saying, I'm going to write uh, books for children. Um, what was that overall journey from kind of start to finish? Well, like, like I said earlier, I started out with picture books, and then I started writing novels. And, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was really tough. I mean, uh, when I, I spent a year uh, basically writing Everlasting Nora, um, back then it had a different title. Um, and so I went to my first, I wrote, I think I went to a writer's day when I saw Lisa Yee speak, it was around April. I don't know what, I forgot what year. And then later that year, I, I started writing and I had written maybe three, four or five chapters and I went to a writer's retreat in September. And I had such great uh, uh, feedback uh, for those pieces because it was like a critique group setting. Um, you went to a retreat and you would sit with people and you would had a you had um, an established author lead the group, and it was just so great. I had such a great experience. Everyone is so encouraging. So I, you know, I finished the book. 
um, later that year and I decided uh, to get a critique group. And so I got into a critique group. I spent maybe a couple of years with one critique group and then um, a second one because my first critique group dissolved after a year and a half. And so I met up with another uh, critique partner who is still currently my partner, which is great. You know, I've been with her for 10 years. Um, and so we worked on Everlasting Nora for a while. Then I went out and started querying it. It, it was tough getting into the trenches because uh, my, my uh, it sparked interest. But at first, I think this was probably 2009, 2010, when there wasn't a lot of diversity on the market. I mean, there was some. I mean, of course, because Lisa Yee published Millicent Men, right? Uh, so there was some, but not, not nearly a enough, lot. Though. Yeah, and 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 I think this story, the first, the first uh, version of the story was a little bit more realistic. I mean, it, this is realistic, but there were some elements there that made it, I think, a little bit more YA than middle grade, um, because I added some elements there that uh, some elements of danger and certain. Um, you know, there was a little bit more on drug addiction and things like that in the first version um, and the dangers to young girls in places like that. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, edit, uh, agents would read it. They would be so very interested and say, you know, we've never read anything like this before. But the trouble was they didn't know uh, if there would be a market for it. And, and I thought to myself, what, how, how can there not be a market for this? I mean, Filipinos, um, Filipino Americans have been here and Filipinos have lived here in America for over a hundred years. And so it can't be that. And so I think it's just, maybe they weren't sure. And so I, I shopped that around for, with agents for a while and uh, for maybe about two years. And then I sort of gave up on it and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna write YA. <laughs> So I wrote a YA book, and um, that's actually how I, I got my agent. So I spent a couple of years drafting, revising my YA book. I still queried uh, my middle grade novel, uh, Everlasting Nora, and but I, you know, just you know, kind of riding the waves of those, you know, getting rejected. Every time I received a rejection, I queried maybe five more agents, <laughs> and just kept sending out queries. And um, and then when I was ready with my YA. I started um, sending that out. And like I said, after a year, I signed with Paula Meunier of Talcott Notch um, Literary Agency. And did and you so, come to her just through a, a query or did you meet her at a conference? No, just through query. Yeah, I, I yeah, query tracker at the time was my friend. <laughs> sure. It's a, a website called query tracker. And um, I also did a lot of Research, you know, there's a, a blog I think with Writers Digest um, where they introduce a lot of new agents, and so I usually kept tabs on that. And luckily for me, uh, Paul was um, still looking for clients. You know, uh, she was looking for uh, client clientele, and so when she she read my book, she was very interested, and in the YA book. And that one was just a story. That one was a paranormal uh, a book. It was about a, a, a girl who's a psychic, and she uses her psychic abilities to search for her missing friend. Um, and so when she started, when we, we worked on that a little bit, and then we started shopping that around to editors. But unfortunately, this the climate, this is 2012, the climate was sort of 
well, we, we have a lot right now of, we have a lot of paranormal books, so it didn't quite work out for the YA novel. And so my, I told my agent about this, uh, middle, this, my middle grade. And so she said, yeah, send it to me. And she loved it. We worked on it a little bit. And then she started sending that out. And, and then she met, I, I believe she met Diana Foe at BA and that's where she pitched the book to, to Diana and, and the story goes from there. We're going to chat, of course, with uh, Diana next week. So a question I want to make sure that I, I ask you this week, and then I'm going to ask her next week the inverse, uh, which is what is it like to work with uh, Maria Miranda Cruz? Uh, but <laughs> since I'm talking with you, what, what was that What was that experience like of working with Diana Foe and of having uh, an editor touch your baby and, and, and make some changes along the way? You know, I have to I have to be perfectly honest with you, Rob. I, you know, for as long as I've been, dreaming about becoming a published author. Once, I, I was always a little bit terrified of the process <laughs> of once the, at once the, the book is acquired and you know, when the editor gives me her notes, that moment was terrifying for me because I wasn't sure, I thought, oh my gosh, will I be able to pull it off? Will I be able to take those notes and revise and to you know, create, you know, re-massage this piece into something my editor, you know, it all would would love, you know, even more than 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 initially, you know, when she bought the when she bought the book, you know, because of course, you know, editors have their own, I think, vision for, you know, their ideas of how much, how better how we can make the book better, right? And so um, I had such anxieties over that. But when I spoke to Diana, uh, we met on a, on a on a like a Skype uh, visit because of course she's in New York, I'm in California. So before we started the process, we talked over Skype and just to you know just to chat and get to know each other, and um, and that was nice. It made me feel more a lot more comfortable. And um, Diana's notes though she she was great. She was wonderful to work with. She responded to questions I had very, you know, promptly, you know, she um, uh, clarified things for me when I was confused. And, um, and in general, it was just a really, really pleasant experience. Uh, she gave me enough time to work on my first round of revision. So that was wonderful. And then um, each time she came back, we, we did maybe, I think, three rounds altogether of revisions. Each round was just a little bit smaller than, than the first. So that was great, uh, but yeah, she she was great. She was she made the experience so good for me. I have to say, it was it was great. She she just took all those fears I had and chopped them down, <laughs> and she just told me, "You can do this. I believe it. You know, just you know, just take your time. You know, I'm open to any questions. I'm available for you." And so uh, yeah, so she was she was awesome. I couldn't have dreamed of a better editor for myself for this book for me for my for it being my first experience she was she was wonderful so there's no headbutting it was all well oh, that's a great idea that will make the book better let me let me follow your vision and, and let's approve this thing well we, we we did have some discussions like I think I ended up I think during the second round I did uh, have to call her uh, because email wasn't enough so I, I asked her for a phone call if we could talk and and she was she was open to that and it wasn't necessarily like headbutting or disagreeing it was just more like um, trying to explain to her the direction I wanted to go in and to see if she was okay with it because 
I believe, you know, the, the editor can say, can give you her ideas or his ideas of Maria, have I lost you? Oh, I think the satellite must have moved and, and blocked us again. You're uh you 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 seem to be frozen. Well, we'll give it a moment here and then maybe we'll do a live reading <laughs> while the tech starts to cooperate. Um yeah, okay, let's uh do a live reading. What the heck? Let's do uh, all together now a zombie story. We haven't done that one before. Marie, are you back? Maybe? Hello? Can you, yes. can you hear me? Oh, good, good, good. Okay. No live reading tonight, esteemed audience. <laughs> we're, we're good. I was uh, going to comment. I met uh, Diana. She came uh, here to Indianapolis for MoCon. Um, uh, Maurice Broadus always finds the, the best people for his conference. Uh, so we were able to shake hands and she was very pleasant, but of course uh, she wasn't editing my manuscript. <laughs> so there wasn't uh, that, that, that same feeling of anxiety on my end. <laughs> so how, uh, what, what's the, uh, what, what's the time frame for when uh, Diana says, yes, let's do this. Uh, and, and you get a contract hammered out uh, to when your book is on shelves. How, how long did all that take? Um, it, it took um, two years. I, I and it, I think that's the general timeline for most books that um, that are published traditionally. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it takes an average among at least uh, lots of other authors I know. It takes about that long from the yes to some. The the time to signing the contract I think varies depending on the house, um, but generally from the time that you say yes the contract goes down to the actual book on the shelf. For me, it was two years and three months. <laughs> you counted down the uh, every, every last day. <laughs> yeah. Ever the ever everlasting. It, it, it is, it sounds really long, doesn't it? I mean, it does. I, it, it, the, the revision process for me took, uh, it was from August to I think April of the next year. So how many months is that? Six months? I think Sounds September, good. October, November, December. Yeah, about six to seven, six, seven or eight months, maybe seven months, let's say, um, until they accepted the final manuscript. Um, that means all the revisions are done, all the technic, all the developmental edits are finished and they accept the manuscript as complete. Um, and then from after that, it's, a whole year and a half <laughs> for copy edits for all the you know all the little things that have to happen you know the um how do you say it the first pass pages that means you know i think they have it all typeset you know so to speak uh through their computer programs and they send that to you and you get to review so you get to basically read your book a couple of times over uh after the completed manuscript is accepted and which is a good thing because then you catch all the little errors that maybe you didn't catch the first time <laughs> or you know you get to correct things you know or answer the copy editors questions about why is this the way it is you know that kind of thing so all the technical stuff happens after that the the development of the cover uh, art you know so that's exciting once that comes down you know that I don't know it, it, I got goosebumps the first time I saw this cover it was just so beautiful uh, the artist 
who created this is Adam Doyle. He was the artist who did uh, Maggie Stiefvater's, uh Scorpion Races uh, oh, okay, sure. book covers. I think it was Scorpion Races. Yeah. So yeah, he's awesome, and I just I just loved I just love that what he created. So yeah, all that exciting stuff happens, and then of course uh, uh, before the year, my debut year. So a few months before that, then we start doing a lot of the promotional things that happen with with the book or for the book, like the cover reveals, any guest blog posts, you know, guest bloggers who want to interview me, that kind of stuff that happened a few months before the release date. So it gets busy. It gets busy a few months before. <laughs> what, and a few uh, months after. <laughs> what marketing so far have you found to be most effective and, and useful for you? Um, pers I, I did, I don't know, you know, it, I, I read up a lot of things on what an author could do to uh, to do a lot of marketing for their own books, but because I was I had a day job, it was very difficult to um, to do that, so to speak. So the only thing I could do was to create awareness, especially for teachers. And so I I, I was on Twitter, you know, I tried to be a little bit more active, um, and it helped a lot to to have a debut group. So. A bunch of us, uh, you know, formed this this group, and we called ourselves the Electric 18s. So we were all coming out with our first book in 2018, and it was very nice because uh, we got not only did we make new friends, but we were there also to help each other uh, in in just getting shouting you know shouting out each other's books as they come out, and showing support that way on Twitter on Instagram and on Facebook. But mostly, I think the, the most effective was definitely on Twitter and Instagram. Um, there's a lot of teachers, you'd be surprised, a lot of teachers are online. And you know there are a lot of uh, groups of teachers that uh, review uh, middle grade and YA books. And they form their own little posses and their own little reading groups. They have their own little hashtags. So. Um, that's it's great to connect with them because then you know like I we receive you know usually we receive arcs for our you know debut novels and so I think I received my arcs maybe a few months before and a few of those uh, reading groups who you know teachers who are reading um, requested copies to review and that was great because that's that was a good way to get the attention you know especially among the uh, school and library communities for my book, which is, you know, middle grade is, that's the hugest, uh, I mean, the most impactful market for middle grade is the school and library people. So that, that's 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 pretty much what we did, you know, just, just stay online, stay in touch with each other. Um, one of the cool things I did, I'm not sure if it was last, I think it was the year before last. Uh, one of the cool things we did, uh, a couple of middle grade authors thought of uh, helping teachers uh, in pure, who work in poor, com poor communities who want to develop reading programs, summer reading programs for their students, they decided to have this campaign to uh, to have you know to to give away books to uh, these teachers, and it was so uh, great, to, heartwarming to participate in that and to see so many other authors uh, participate in this program. You know, you would we would campaign on Twitter and show them a stack of books and say, you know, have the teachers, you know, follow us and retweet us. 
and we would do a raffle and give away these books. So it was a good way to, to, to you know, get attention, uh, to help out teachers and provide books for their students, especially the, 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 the schools that couldn't provide, you know, uh, books for their kids and for the kids who couldn't afford to buy books on their own. This was a really, really great program. And it was a great outreach in that sense. And it was also a good way for, for authors to connect with teachers. So you're connecting, you're getting your name out there, you're blowing up your Twitter followers, and you're doing good <laughs> in the world. So it's everybody wins, right? Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was it, the purpose of it was mostly for for the kids, but I think you know, I think I think it's just it's just great to to and and to hear teachers, you know, um, uh, they're so happy when they when they receive these books. They're so uh, happy for them, you know, for the students. And so very grateful, and it's so. It, I feel like you're doing something good, you know, because we want we want people to keep. We want to encourage kids to keep reading, you know, um, because reading is so wonderful. <laughs> stories are great. We need stories in our lives. This is what makes us human beings, you know, Be, the stories and how we, you know, we our lives are stories and how we can, um, you know, it helps us understand and ready us for what to expect, you know, it opens up your imagination to what could be out in the world. Does that make I sense? Also, I want to <laughs> live amongst a more literate population. I feel my life will be better if I'm walking around by people that are more educated and more empathetic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it is wonderful, especially in this day and age when, you know, um, technology is so advanced, you have more and more kids who are, you know, bound to, iPads and phones and things like that. I, I get such a kick when I see kids with actual books, reading books. I actually, I have a story to tell you, Rob. Sure. I had this great experience. Um, my my um, publishing, my publisher uh, was so wonderful, wonderful and gracious. And they sent me on a book tour. And the end of my book tour was in Houston. And I went to a um, middle grade book festival. And it, it was geared specifically for middle schoolers. And the, what they did was um, Blue Willow Books was the host of this festival. They provided all the books that were sold at this festival. And um, we, there was just a bunch of middle grade authors. We came, we did uh, panels, and um, they, had, uh, they had presentations. And the students got to line up at the end of the day and get their books signed. And I saw children. And these are middle school kids with stacks of books going from author line to author line, getting their book signed. I mean, it was so great. It was so great to see, you know, so many kids still so enthusiastic about reading. Yeah, I love it. There's hope for <laughs> the future. <laughs> yeah, I would say there are uh, more literate people on the planet than there ever have been in all of history. Unfortunately, there are also far more options vying for their time uh, than there maybe have ever been in all of history. So yeah, mm -hmm. six of one, half a dozen the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a it's a good balance. I think you know technology is needed, of course, uh, for our daily living. But uh, it's also good to to have that that the stories also to have the books. Well, let me uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, everlasting Nora. Uh, so obviously, my first question to you is Maria Miranda Cruz. Have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? 
<laughs> I have never seen a flying saucer, but I would love to see one. I I don't know if I could see. If, I don't know if saying I believe in them is quite the statement. I want to say I want to believe in them, and I would welcome the possibility of seeing one. Yeah, I will be looking. I I look at the skies, and I and you know I I I have to say that I growing up not growing up. But when I, uh, I was reading a lot of books uh, in my 20s, and a lot of them were, were science fiction and fantasy novels. So I, yeah, yeah, I would love to see a flying saucer. <laughs> It'll be great. And as soon as we can find an author from another planet, by God, we'll get him on this show. I promise. <laughs> I, I want to talk to him. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what's, uh, what's been your favorite reader reaction so far to Everlasting Nora? Um... I would say my, my most favorite so far, uh, I received a letter from a teacher in Canada who was writing to me on behalf of her class. Apparently they read uh, Everlasting Nora together, they, they studied it, and uh, she said that her students really, really enjoyed it. They said that they, they think it could be a movie, <laughs> and they wanted to know if there was going to be a sequel. <laughs> Is there going to be a sequel? Um, well, I have a sequel in mind, but we'll see. I, I, I initially wanted it to be a standalone book, um, but I did have an idea for what would happen to Nora afterwards. Uh, I have been receiving um, some uh, in-person queries from children who have read the book and from some adults who say, hey, so what happened to Nora after that? <laughs> And I said, well, yeah, I, I have an idea of what did happen to Norris, so we'll see. Um, that could be, that's a project in the future. And then um, I know that you mentioned uh, that you used, um, in addition to your critique group, uh, you used sensitivity readers for the book. And so I'm always curious, what was your process for one, finding sensitivity readers, and then how were you able to use their input uh, to better shape the book? Um, my, uh, Diana uh, was actually the one who initiated the process of finding a sensitivity reader. Um, she uh, asked me for suggestions. Uh, I didn't have anybody in mind particularly. I was, I d oh, actually I did. I had a, a librarian uh, who is Filipino-American uh, Filipino who uh, I suggested could read the book and then Diana herself had somebody in mind in New York City who um, was willing to give feedback. So we had feedback from both those sides. Um, so in terms of uh, after that, my I think Diana wanted to have a sensitivity reader from the Philippines. She wanted to make sure that uh, Filipino Amer Filipinos in the Philippines, that this story would read true to them. And, um, and I had to admit that you know it had it had been over almost thirty years since I last lived in the Philippines, so I had to admit even to myself that maybe my own memories might be a little faulty. So I agreed, and um, I had I did know somebody in the Philippines who she was actually my classmate in high school, and she works in the movie and uh, music industry in the Philippines. So I knew that she had a very good understanding of what a, a DNR is. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, so um, 
is that the right term for that document? Or am I thinking of, no, no, it's not DNR. It's, That's it's, do not resuscitate. It's, it's do not that. talk about what you read, right? <laughs> I don't know what the I'm official term is. a medical is. term. <laughs> Non-disclosure agreement was what I was looking for. Oh, that's the one. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry about that. That was a slip there. No, by all means, if the if the manuscript goes into cardiac arrest, by God, resuscitate it. <laughs> Just don't tell anybody about it afterwards. <laughs> that's hilarious. So yes, NDR, so non-disclosure agreement. Oh my god. Non-disclosure agreement. So she had a good she had an uh, and she had an understanding of what you know intellectual property is since she works in the music industry. So I asked her to read it for me. And she gave me some really great feedback and lots of good reassurances that you know it read true to her culture-wise, the people, how I uh, drew the characters. Um she gave it the stamp of approval. So that was that was really great. She had some good tips though that I, you know, that I had to change a few things like uh, cell phone use. <laughs> I left the Philippines in the 80s. So back then there were no cell phones. <laughs> so I had to kind of drop that in there. I go, oh yeah, there would be cell phones. Even even among um some of the poor folks there, they still have cell phones. So yeah. So well, I had unfortunately, to kind of I don't think there's uh, hardly any place you can go on Earth anymore where where there wouldn't be somebody with a phone. Exactly with a cell phone. So yeah, so that was that was an eye opener. Yeah. So yeah, the the, the I, I know that uh, some authors have um, you know depending on where they live or who they know, it is it can be difficult uh, to find sensitivity readers. Um, but I think there there's a lot of good resources online. Um, to look for, you know, to you can get in touch with people there, and if you have a wide uh, group of friends, sometimes you can, um, uh, you know, just put a shout out, you know, whether on on what social media, you know, if you have a writing group there, uh, if they know anybody who would read for you. And but the the key thing I think the important thing to think about when you're getting a sensitivity reader is that you have to listen to what they have to say. Because I've heard of um, some instances where there's some pushback, you know, they, they will, some, an author will have somebody read for them, um, you know, do a sensitive, sensitivity read, but the author, you know, doesn't respond very well to the feedback. And so I think it's so, so key to, if you're going to do this, you're going to seek out somebody to read for you, um, to, you know, especially if you have uh, people of color in your book, if you have uh, a different culture, you're writing, a, you know, or referencing a different culture in a book or a different, you know, uh, somebody who is from a different culture in your book, you know, you have to uh, really listen to the feedback from the sensitivity reader. I think that's the most important thing when you're looking to get one. You have to be prepared for the feedback and be prepared to listen. One of my uh, favorite things on Twitter is when somebody will tweet out a page from a book of an author who clearly did not use the sensitivity reader. And uh, it's, it's just awful, and everybody gangs on it and, and makes fun of it. And so it's one of my goals in life to never have a page by one of my books uh, <laughs> being being tweeted about in, in that manner. Uh, yeah. If you think it's brilliant, by God, tweet that out, but don't <laughs> don't come at me and say Rob Kent didn't uh, didn't didn't nail the aspect of this. Um, let me ask you about Nora. Because uh, you, you start with the setting, uh, you've got kind of an idea, I assume, of, of what your plot's going to look at. So how did you come to decide 
that a 12-year-old girl is going to be the, the ideal protagonist for this story? And how did you come to discover Nora? Was it as you were writing? Did you come up with her first and then start writing? In a way, I did um, I did come up with her first when I, when I well, well, the, the setting came into it for sure. You know, the Manila North Cemetery with the squatter community. Um, I would say that that blog post about that girl, Grace, was the real uh, push to um, to creating the character. And so it, I did sort of I model uh, Nora after what I thought Grace or who I thought Grace was. And so that's where I started out. Um, and and basically just coming from that point of view, uh, hold on, my, my computer did that thing again where it went to sleep, the screen, I don't know why it keeps doing that. Um, so I need to wiggle my mouse a little, little every now and then. So yeah, I, I think she was the, the inspiration um, for Nora. And the decision to make her 12 years old, I think came naturally because of that blog post about that little girl, Grace, because I think Grace uh, was about 11 or 12 years old when the missionary was wrote, wrote that blog post about her. So I think it just fell naturally into that, you know, because she was the inspiration for it and she was that age, I decided that Nora would also be that age. There is a lot of talk uh, throughout the book uh, about uh, money. There's depictions of uh, the wealthier people versus the uh, who we're spending the, our largest amount of time with, which is the poorer people, um, and a lot of talk about debts. Um, uh, there's, without spoiling, a major character with a gambling issue. Um, what what is it that you're hoping that your readers will take away from that discussion of economics within the book? Is there something specific that you want to say, or is it just that that happens to be in the story? Well, I I don't know that there was. I don't think I was. Uh, I I didn't write it to to send any particular message necessarily. Um, but I what I wanted was to present uh, the realities of life there, uh, especially for these poor folks. Um, also to kind to sort of expose people to you know what uh, the dynamics of classism you know in the Philippines too you know for it to help people understand uh, maybe why uh, why Filipinos are so driven you know especially if you meet Filipinos here in the states uh, especially the ones who have immigrated directly from the Philippines um, at, or from any other country, you you find that the, these immigrants are so driven to to do well, to make money, to better their lives, and um, and but mostly the purpose of writing about that was just to present the realities of life there, the what I experienced and what my characters experience. Um, to just give everyone a taste of that, because I don't think there are there, as far as I know, there aren't very many stories. There might be a few now, but before a few years ago, there weren't any stories at all about life in the Philippines. No one knew what it was like to live there and the sort of the problems that people face uh, from day to day, or what the you know the the sort of um, prejudices they experience because of their lack of money you know, or because they have a lot of money, you know, it's, it's, 
uh, there is such a distinction in the Philippines. I, I, I always consider myself, like I said, you know, sort of solidly middle class. And there is a, a fair amount of people who would be considered middle class in the Philippines, that this would be the main workforce who at least have their own homes, who can afford to put their kids through school and things like that. But there are so many people who live so well below the poverty line. And then you have all these people that live who are so very rich. I now there aren't you don't really see very many of those people in this story. You see mostly the pe the people who live along that that you know that middle that middle class uh, line. And 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 even then there are um, distinct social prejudices. You know, for people who who are poor, you know, as in not not to have any spoilers, but like with the family that. Um, that uh, Nora and her mother live with her father's family. Um, they have very, you know, they experience very specific prejudices prejudices there while living there, because of who her mother was, right? Uh, to them, and not to spoil that part, but um, and so I just wanted to illustrate that and to show that, you know, without it being. Uh, how do you say it? Um, without um, making it, I don't know. I don't know what word to describe that. It's just I just wanted to show what is life there. I think that was my main purpose. My main purpose in in writing this story, just to illustrate what is it, what it's like. Does that make any sense? I keep. I feel like I'm rambling. That <laughs> <laughs> makes a hundred percent complete sense. And by the way, you absolutely accomplished that mission. By the time I finished Everlasting Nora, I had a much better understanding of uh, what the life would be of a, of a twelve-year-old girl in the Philippines uh, in this particular set of circumstances than I did before. I don't know that I'm the ideal reader that you had in mind when you wrote it, but by golly, you reached me. <laughs> I've got it quite brilliant. Yeah, it's 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 funny because one of the one of the things that, like I said, what pushed me to write this was because there there is, you know, uh, in, in the in the arena of American publishing and in the books that are published here in the United States, there aren't very many books that have Filipino characters or um, that uh, have stories set in the Philippines, and that was my main goal was was to do that, you know, was to to show this life to to be published here to show to share this culture with with and and I would say yes you are one of the ideal readers you know because you don't you know you 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 could have friends who are Filipinos but and yet maybe not really understand some elements of the dynamics of their their family life or or why they do certain things um you know I think most Americans when it comes to Filipinos uh, they're mostly familiar with the food that we eat you know or um, the fact that most women, Filipino American women are nurses, <laughs> which is not, all, not exactly true, but it seems that way, you know? Um, so it, it just, just to get, you know, it's sort of to, to, to break down those stereotypes to show, you know, what, what is true about Filipino culture. And also I think one of the things like thematically, you know, community was a big theme in, in my book. And that's something that is a Filipino, I would say, I wanted to show that Filipino quality, uh, or I say Filipino characteristic that is so distinctive in my culture. And it's called bayanihan. That's the Tagalog word for it. And bayanihan means community 
It means helping each other out. And this is what, you know, how Filipinos are, even here in the States. Um, just to illustrate that, you know, there could be like where I work in the hospital, uh, there's another lab and there's some Filipino women who work there and a couple of Filipino men and they gather at lunchtime and they bring food for each other. They share, you know, they, they do things like that. It's something that people in the Philippines do as well. Um, so yeah, so that, that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to. I had a looking for a passage. I believe you described them, the, the squatters in the cemetery uh, as ants who protect each other in order to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like a community of ants. And I was thinking about that when I wrote the book and when that line came up. And I thought that was true because, you know, you the, the ants work towards, you know, um, helping their community. You know, the, the more that they, they do, the, the, the stronger their community. And I sort of, um, the, what happens in Nora sort of, uh, I base that on my own life when I was growing up, when I was growing up there, when I was going to high school, we lived uh, in a compound um, that belonged to my grandfather. And so there were four houses there. My, we lived in my grandfather's house because he had already passed away. But my, my mom's two sisters lived there and her brother. And so we did sort of the same thing it, right in there. You know, my, um, my aunt helped my mom with the laundry. Back then we didn't have, and most people still don't have washing machines. And so my aunt helped my mom with the laundry. And in turn, my mom would cook food and she would give her some of the food. So it was kind of that give and take sort of dynamic that happened within my, my own family that I base the community that Nora lived in. You know, that's how I, that's what I thought of when I was writing about the community, because it's very true. You know, that's what people do over there. You know, they help each other out. They, you know, they could trade services or items for something, you know, if they didn't have money, you know, they, they would do that. They, they'll, you know, build something for you or clean for you. And then you could, you could give them something in turn, or if you needed something from them, you could do something, you know, perform a task for them and then they would exchange it with something, you know, either um, in kind or another service. So it, it's, that's, that's what I based it on. From the outside looking in, and I'm an introvert, uh, so I, I don't, I never want people that much in my business. Um, but it does sound like a very satisfying and happy way to live, to have people to fight for and to know there are people fighting for you on a daily basis. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was it was really a lot of fun. And when I was growing up in that compound, um, it was it was just my mom. It was great for my mom because she had a lot of support as far as you know, um, uh, help to do particular tasks. Like I said, you know, whether it be shopping for groceries, going to market, um, help helping somebody with the ironing. Um, helping somebody with uh, the cooking. So that was my mom's main thing was cooking. So she did a lot of cooking for for my aunts and my cousins and things like that. And um, and my, my the other aunt that lived there uh, did the same thing. She was she did a lot of cooking. She would. My mom was a bit nervous, the nervous type. She would she didn't like to go to the doctor. So my aunt did her a favor and took us to the doctor for her. <laughs> so things like that. Yeah. So it was nice. It was it was a lot of fun. And plus it was great for my brother and my sister because I had a lot of cousins that lived there and so they had ready playmates. 
all the time. So it was just a fun, noisy little community. And that's sort of what I wanted to illustrate in this book as well. That kids, you know, no matter what their circumstances are, they can find joy in the simplest things in life, just being able to play with other kids, uh, to, you know, have fun, go out and buy, you know, little snacks or candies from the stores. Um, because in the Philippines, they have what we call sari sari stores. And these are like little independent shops that pop up in neighborhoods. And you could buy anything from uh, soda to uh, ice, you know, like uh, popsicles. You can buy candy. You can buy anything pretty much. They sell it there. And um, so it was a lot of fun for, you know, for little kids, especially my, my cousins uh, and my brother and sister. They would play games all afternoon and then go out and find, buy food and bring it back and just have, have fun. Maria, I uh, know we're running right here to the, the end of our time together, so I better sum up all the questions I have for you with, with, with just one more question. Uh, and that is, if there was one piece of advice, you could go back 12 years or however long ago back you want to go and tell you as you were starting out to write, if there was one piece of advice you think that might have made that writing journey easier for you, what would that piece of advice be? That's a tough question. That's a really tough question because the writing journey is hard no matter no matter how you look at it. And I think, um, I think, I think maybe the best piece of advice that I know, well, I, I don't know. I think my journey is the way it was. I mean, the, the, my path is as it should be, you know, it was tough. Um, I don't know that there is any one piece of advice that I wish I, I received because um, it all involves working really hard and being very patient <laughs> and, and you have to be that. And, but I, I think if I was to give somebody a tip, you know, uh, an, a good piece of advice is to find your community. And I think, I think I think that would have been the, the best advice for me, especially early on on my journey in my journey um, to look for, um, uh, you know, your 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 people to look for a critique group, uh, uh, friends who could uh, not only give you honest feedback, but who can also uh, hold you up when you're when you're ready to give up and to keep to keep you going, to keep encouraging you. I don't know. So find That's your uh, community of ants within the, the writing community? Exactly. There you go. To find your community of ants. I think, yeah, because that, that, that was that I think is so important is to find your writing community because it can be so tough. You know, writing is so solitary and you're probably surrounded by people who don't understand uh, what it is to, to, to write and to be creative and to um, how hard it is to, you know, uh, make what you write make sense to other people. You know, it's so hard to get the words out or it's so hard to, to take those words and massage it into something that makes sense. Um, 
that you know you really need your community you need that other person who is also writing a book who's also going through those struggles to help you so i i think i think that would be one of the, the you know i think the most important piece of advice that i wish i had earlier on was to find my writing community and to invest in in uh being with them and being around them which means you know going to conferences making you know networking and doing that kind of thing yeah i think it's very important for this journey it helps you keep going it's blood <laughs> for a writer <laughs> that's what i feel at least <laughs> take that back in time along with some stock tips and give that to young you you'll be doing all right <laughs> well, maria where uh, can esteemed audience find you online where can they learn more about you um, I have a website. It's called, it is www.cruiserights.com. I am on Twitter as well. Cruise Rights is my handle. And you can find me on Instagram as Mari V uh, under Marie Cruz. So yeah, yeah, it's, that's where you can find me. And I, of course, am at middlegradeninja.com. Log in. You can read interviews with hundreds of different literary agents, authors, other publishing professionals. And I hear what you're saying, uh, esteemed audience. Read. No, no. Well, don't worry. we got a whole back catalog of fine podcast episodes for you as well. So make sure you check out uh, all the previous guests. Uh, make sure you come back here on the 25th. We'll be chatting with editor Diana Foe. Uh, and then after the 4th of July holiday celebration, we're going to be right back in action with several uh, wonderful middle grade authors uh, and uh, publishing professionals then as well. Um, and again, every day until the uh, until impeachment uh, inquiries begin, reach out to your representatives, send emails, send phone calls, fight like the country is at stake, because by God it is. Um, Marie, I have been asking our guests to sign us off with a very particular ninja-like sign-off phrase. Uh, and that sign-off phrase is hiya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Um, it was great being here, Rob. Um, it was great talking to you and have this chance to chat. Um, so I will sign us off with a hiya and what have you.